You're listening to The Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to The Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. Joining me today to discuss IER's recently released report on the levelized costs of electricity is Mary J. Hutzler, a distinguished senior fellow here at the Institute for Energy Research. Prior to joining IER, Mary was a top energy analyst for the U.S. government, having spent more than 25 years at the Energy Information Administration, where she specialized in data collection, analysis, and forecasting. In 2001, she was named by President Bush to lead the EIA as acting administrator, and in this role, she testified before congressional committees, briefed policymakers on energy issues, held press conferences on EIA products, and interacted with energy organizations on controversial issues dealing with EIA data collection. Mary, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you, Alex. Yeah, so last week, IER released a report on the levelized cost of electricity, which found that building new electrical generating facilities to, uh, to replace existing plants ahead of their retirement time increases electricity prices for customers. Before we dive into the details of the report, do you mind just starting by explaining what levelized cost of electricity figures represent and why they're important in energy policy discussions? Sure. Um, levelized costs uh, are defined to be the cost of building and operating a generating plant over assumed financial life and a duty cycle. They're put on a per-unit basis, such as on a per-megawatt-hour basis or a per-kilowatt-hour basis. So uh, essentially what's happened in the past is that most studies have looked at calculating the levelized cost of new generating technologies and not looking at existing generating technologies. And that might have been fine when electricity demand was increasing, and it had been many years ago increasing at very high rates. So what you needed was new capacity. Your existing capacity was insufficient to meet demand. And then you could compare the costs of these new technologies amongst, uh, amongst themselves and see which would be the least expensive uh, to choose for future generation. What's happening more recently is that electricity demand has gone down or is leveling out and that we didn't need a lot of new capacity, but new capacity were was being built because of portfolio standards or other reasons. And as a result, uh, a lot of these existing technologies were prematurely retired. We've noticed about 70 gigawatts of coal and nuclear plants have been retired since 2011. So if we also calculated the cost of existing generation resources, that could be compared to new generation resources and then policymakers and public utility commissioners could have a full plate in making their determinations. Yeah, great. And you, you touched on what's sort of unique about our report is that we're looking at existing generating resources. But we also include a calculation of costs that new non-dispatchable resources impose on existing power plants that are already operating on the grid. Together, those two elements sort of pull together what the two big findings of the report are, which first, uh, can we talk about imposed costs? Can you walk our listeners through why non-dispatchable resources like wind and solar impose costs on uh, already existing resources, and then explain what the report found those cost estimates to be? 
Sure. Um, what happens when renewables such as wind and solar start their generation starts falling off is that other plants, which are dispatchal plants, must be called into service. These are coal, nuclear, uh, natural gas plants. And when they're called into service, there's an added cost because they're their fixed costs are the same, but now they're generating less than they would have generated if these other technologies weren't there. As a result, there are costs that are provided to the system for those technologies to be operating. What we did was we assumed that for a wind plant, that technology that would be coming online to replace the wind's generation when it fell off would be a natural gas combined cycle plant. And for solar, we assumed it would be a combination between a natural gas turbine and a natural gas combined cycle plant. When we did the calculation to figure out what the imposed cost would be, and the calculations detailed in the report, we found that the imposed cost for wind was $24 per megawatt hour, and the imposed cost for solar would be $21 per megawatt hour. And these costs would then be added to the levelized cost of wind and solar. Um, and that's what our report did when we compared that cost to the cost of existing generating technologies. And what we essentially found out there was that the existing plants were two to three times less expensive than the wind and solar plants when their imposed costs were included. The lower cost of existing power plants, the report says that it can generally be attributed to the fact that they're fixed costs are lower, and you've alluded to that um, here already in our discussion. Can you just walk listeners through why why their fixed costs are lower and what why that's the case? Okay, let me mention first, sure. though, that one of the findings that you didn't mention is that the levelized cost of existing plants are less than the levelized cost of new plants of the same type. Um, and that you'd expect because the existing plants have already paid all or most of their original capital costs off, while the new plant has to pay its entire construction profile, um, you know, the, the construction costs that one has to pay. And they are part of the levelized cost over, say, a 30-year financial life. Um, we also found that the levelized cost of existing plants are less than the least cost new plant, which we found to be a natural gas combined cycle plant. Now, when a plant operates, it has fixed costs and it has variable costs. The fixed costs are construction costs and the uh, fixed operations and maintenance costs. The variable costs typically are fuel costs. Those fixed costs, the construction costs, and the um, fixed O&M costs are there regardless if the plant operates 90% of the time or if it operates 40% of the time. When wind and, coal, wind and solar plants come online, they displace some of, these, uh, some of the generation from these other plants. So they're operating fewer hours. And if they're operating fewer hours, their levelized costs go up because they're spread over a fewer number of kilowatt hours of generation. What exactly do all these findings say about the longevity of our existing fleet of power plants? Well, certainly we have 
power plants that have been operating 50 to 60 years um, and have not had a problem. Some of the parts may need to be replaced, but those costs tend to be less than building a new plant, at least from the Form 1 data that we used to calculate the existing levelized costs, that was the case. And there are studies that say our nuclear plants could be continuing to operate for 80 years if the Nuclear Regulatory Commission would also in, uh, approve uh, a renewal of the licenses to the nuclear plants. So just from history, we've seen that these plants can operate for far longer than a 30-year financial life, which the Energy Information Administration assumes that the capital costs would be repaid. Yeah, and these cost savings from existing resources are they're under threat from regulatory compliance costs sometimes and uh, wholesale price suppression in, in the form of subsidies for wind and solar generation. Why should the public be concerned about this? Let me go over something that has happened historically, which sure. is we looked at electricity prices from 2009 to 2017. We found those electricity prices went up 7%. This happened when uh, natural gas and coal prices were either fairly flat or going down. So one would wonder, well, why did they go up that much? The other thing we noticed was that in states where um, the amount of renewable generation, wind and solar, was 30% or higher, we found that their average electricity prices went up by 27% or more over that same time period. What's happening is because we're building new capacity, we're making our ratepayers pay higher prices for electricity. We may not have needed to build that new capacity, uh, and as a result of building it, we do have higher electricity prices. The other thing is that we're subsidizing wind and uh, solar plants. We have a production tax credit on wind that says that those plants can get 2.3 cents per kilowatt hour for the next 10 years that they are operating. And we have a uh, investment tax credit for solar that uh, means they can get a tax credit of 30, up to 30% of their construction costs. Well, taxpayers are paying for it. So it's really costing us to operate these new solar and wind plants in various ways, either the consumer's paying more or the taxpayer's paying more. Actually, both is happening. Sure. And these levelized cost findings, though, they, they contradict sort of the popular narrative that we hear that wind and solar prices have fallen so low that they're ready to com compete with, uh, with existing power plants. And predictably, uh, after we released our report, renewable industry groups came out with their, their critiques, and specifically AWEA, uh, the American Wind Energy Association, had a blog post where they tried to push back at us, and uh, you put together a response to them, which I thought did a pretty good job of dismantling a lot of, a lot of the concerns that they raised, starting with the fact that it wasn't really clear that they were even reading the right report. Are there any specific concerns they raised that you want to highlight and respond to for our listeners here? Sure, there were a number of them. One is that they quoted some numbers for wind from an article, and 
those numbers that they quoted were not uh, cost numbers. They were purchase power agreement numbers. And a purchase power agreement is not the same. It's a contract between two parties, one who generates electricity and one who's looking to purchase electricity. So it's a contract between the buyer and the seller. Um, those aren't the same. So that was one issue. Another issue is they quoted uh, costs from a different article for wind, where those costs were very low, but they didn't quote the costs of the local coal plants uh, that the article cited. Once you added in the production tax credit costs um, or um, subsidies to the wind costs, you found that the coal plants costs were very much um, competitive with the cost of the wind plants. But probably the most interesting thing in their comments was they compared our costs with those of other organizations. And they did two things when they made the comparison. In one case, um, or in the case of the other studies, they quoted the lowest range of the cost rather than the entire range of the cost. So when you see the low cost of these other studies compared to the cost we got, you would think that um, our cost would be a major outlier when, in fact, they, for the most part, were in the range of these other studies. The other thing they did was they used the cost that we had from our 2016 report rather than the cost for wind and solar from our 2019 report. Over the past three years, wind and solar costs have come down, and so did our numbers. Um, so again, they made the numbers that we put out to be an outlier, but they weren't using the right numbers. There were a number of other things that they did that we didn't agree with, one of which was they commented about our imposed cost calculation. And in their comment, they said that other studies were using a much higher capacity value for solar power than we used. Now, capacity value and capacity factor are not the same. Uh, capacity factor is the amount of time in percentage terms that a unit would operate compared to their total hours that they could be operating, where a capacity value is the value that the, that the resource provides to the capacity on the grid. We have felt that solar should have a capacity value of around 60 or 65 percent. And they based this on a report that the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator put out. But this report looked at when solar was, was available, and they looked at it when the sun shined the most, and that being from 2 to 6 p.m., in the months of June, July, and August. And of course, solar's capacity value at that time would be very high. We instead used a methodology provided by Potomac Economics where, uh, and we looked at a capacity value for solar, which would be relevant for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and 365 days in the year. That capacity factor, that uh, value that we calculated was 12.9%. So, of course, you would get a much higher value if you limited it to when solar was available, not 
for 365 days of the year. But people want their electricity to be available 365 days a year. So we thought that was a much fairer value. Also, they said that we didn't need to calculate an imposed cost because the Energy Information Administration has done it already. Well, the cost that the Energy Administration calculated is something they call LACE, or Levelized Avoided Cost of Electricity. Here again, they assume something similar to the MISO report. They assumed that the cost of electricity it would be primarily a function of the cost of the generation that a new plant would displace when that new plant is available. So that's pretty much the same issue that we have with the MISO report. We need to be able to generate electricity 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Yeah, and you also uh, responded to an S&P Global report that claimed that our study contradicts another report produced by two groups called Energy Innovation and Vibrant Clean Energy, uh, which claimed that about 74% of the existing coal fleet could be replaced by wind and solar with no uh, no immediate costs to, uh, to consumers. Would you like to comment about why the IR report shows that that's probably not the case? Well... What that study indicated was that it did not consider lost capital, retirement costs, or analysis of reliability. What our imposed costs do is to take into account the issue of reliability, and that's why we've added on these additional costs. There are costs on the system, they're unavoidable, and somebody has to pay them. The fact that they also did not consider lost capital or retirement costs is also an issue because those are also imposed costs, and they should be entered into the calculation as well, and they didn't consider those. So a true comparison between wind and solar resources and the other dispatchable resources really can't be made unless they look at those costs. Let me just mention that uh, lost capital is an issue for some of these coal plants that are retiring prematurely. There's a a uh, plant, for instance, in Wisconsin, the 1,200-megawatt plant that's being retired uh, in the near future. But that coal plant has stranded costs and uh, that have to be repaid. And though the ratepayers will probably have to repay these costs over the next 10 or 20 years, and they're estimating that that's an additional cost of a billion dollars. Well, if the wind and solar units weren't replacing the coal units, these costs wouldn't have to be there. They would be, uh, as they would be as part of their original levelized cost, and they they wouldn't be additional costs. I'll be sure to attach both of those responses that you provided to the uh, to the show notes for this episode, so that people can take a look at that back and forth. Is there anything that we haven't discussed about the report here that you think might also be valuable for our listeners today? Well, in summary, I, I just wanted to say that the report generally finds that in the absence of external, non-economic pressures, that the most cost-effective generating option is not to replace existing resources. And what's been happening is that uh, states and government have added uh, pressures 
they've added these non-economic pressures, and it's provided these imposed costs, which are real costs that somebody has to pay. If they didn't do that, if they let the market decide itself what plants we should be building, then we wouldn't have added higher electricity prices to the consumers. So it's very important that lawmakers and politicians understand that there are these other costs when they're making these decisions. Great. Thank you. My guest today has been Mary J. Hutzler. Mary, thank you again for speaking with me. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please take the time to rate and review the podcast. To hear more episodes of Plugged In, visit our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org.